Good morning. My name is Scott Boyd. I'm one of your elders here. It's my privilege to read the scripture that Pastor Dan will be preaching from this morning. So if you turn to Romans 7, verses 1 to 6 is what I'm going to read. It's up here on the screens, and it's also in your Bible on page 1200, I believe. My Bible titles this section, Released from the Law. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Good morning. I think that uh, a lot of us tend to refer to this weekend as a long weekend. Um. But I hope we're also mindful that that the reason it's a long weekend is because tomorrow is the day that the country in which we live has set aside to remember uh, those who have sacrificed their lives to to help us to to have the kind of liberties that we enjoy every day. Um, so uh, I'm thankful for that. I hope I hope you'd be thankful for that as well. Um, I'd like to pray for us. One that we would uh, that God would speak to us through His Word, um, but also that we might thank God for uh, for the many blessings that we have uh, where we live, and for for the lives of of those who have sacrificed that we might might enjoy the life we have. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you for the the lives of so many who have gone before us. We recognize that, that in, in every area of life, we, we stand on the shoulders of others who have, who have been there first and who have, in many cases, paid a dear price that we might benefit from, from their sacrifice and for what they have fought for and pursued. Lord, we know that... that the country that we live in is not the kingdom of God. It's not even the new Israel. It's a place, though, it's a, it's a land where many of, of those who helped to found it believe they, they served you and, and knew you and, and wanted to honor you. And, and we're, not, we're not living in that same time. Lord, your word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we're not claiming that that you are the God of of this country. But we do pray that you would be working 
as you are working in the world, that you would also be working in this country to redeem people, to call people out of darkness into the glorious kingdom of your Son. So we give thanks to you today for for those who have sacrificed before us. And we pray for your, your work, your gospel work, both in this land as well as to the ends of the earth, that you would be glorified and that you would be pleased to call many to yourself for salvation and that, by extension, this land would be blessed. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now, we do pray that you will open our ears and open our eyes, help us to understand your word as you have revealed yourself to us in it. And so help me to communicate clearly. I pray that, um, that you would be our teacher and that your spirit would, would testify by and with your word in our hearts as we receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, continuing to study the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, Pastor Bruce is, uh, he and Kathy actually are in California, uh, have been most of this past week. They're meeting their, their newest grandchild. Uh, their daughter Sarah lives out, out in the San Francisco area. And um, so it's my, my privilege to, to be able to minister God's word with you today. Um, I would encourage you, I know we're, we're reading in, a, in, in Romans chapter 7, and I know Scott read for us from verses 1 through 6, but I'd encourage you uh, to, to keep your Bibles open this morning, um, whether it's um, the Bible that's in the back of the, you know, the, the, the hymn, the, the pew rack there right in front of you, or you've got it on your phone or what have you. The reason um, that I would encourage you is uh, twofold. One is because you should read God's word and, and take it as truer truth than what I'm saying to you. In other words, test what I'm saying to you against what you, what you read in the scriptures. But the second reason that I would encourage you today to do that is because Romans chapter 7 was not meant to be interpreted as a standalone section of scripture. It's part of a big letter uh, and it's part of a progression, a logical flow, almost an argument, if you will, that Paul is developing. And that argument started in Romans chapter 6, which we looked at two weeks ago with Bruce. And, and it certainly doesn't come to a conclusion at very least until chapter 8. And, it, and you could probably make the argument that it goes beyond chapter 8. So I just, what I'm encouraging you to do is to look at Romans 7 and see it in its broader context. So, so you know, if your eyes wander into chapter 6 and chapter 8, um, I think that's a good thing because, you know, chapter 7 and our understanding of it really is, is, is rooted in, in the broader context. So, um, but I do want to remind us of where Paul is in this logical progression that he's in. It's been two weeks since we looked at, at chapter 6, and so I wanted to, to remind us a little bit of where, where we were there. In chapter 6, Paul has, has made the case that people who put their trust in Jesus Christ have had a profound internal change that has taken place. He says that we have been moved from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Before faith in Christ, he says that we were dead to God. We were 
in bondage, Paul says, to sinfulness and death. But having, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from this bondage to sin and death into a new condition where he refers to us as dead to sin. We used to be dead to God and alive to sin. Now he says we are dead to sin and alive to God. In verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, We were buried with Christ into death. In other words, our old self has died. And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we too now walk in newness of life. He then goes on to summarize this by, by saying in verse 19 of chapter 6 that, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but instead we are now slaves to righteousness. Now there is a, a verse in the Bible that I will just tell you that I find to be pretty discouraging. I know that may sound a little counterintuitive, isn't all of God's words supposed to be encouraging? But I'm just telling you, this verse is kind of discouraging to me. It's found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, and Jesus is talking, and this is what he says. He says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does that mean? Well, this is what I think it means. I think it means that what comes out of us is what is in us. In other words, everything that comes out of us only comes out of us because it was first inside of us. It's interesting that, that Jesus, when, when he talks to, to the Pharisees about what makes people unclean, he says, it's not what goes into a person. It's not what you put in your mouth. Because remember, a lot of the, the Jewish religious leaders were all, you know, they made a big deal about eating the right things and not eating things that were unclean. And Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's actually what comes out of them. Why? Because what comes out of us is what is in us. Maybe you've seen people who, who will do something that in hindsight they become ashamed of. Something they're not proud of. And you'll hear him say something like this, you know, that, that, that really wasn't me. I'm, I'm not really like that. That's, that's not really who I am. Well, here's what's so discouraging to me about what Jesus says here. Jesus is actually saying, yes, it is who you really are. Because it wouldn't have come out of you if it wasn't first in you. There's nothing that comes out of us that isn't first in us. Now, it may be pressure that breaks it loose. It may be stress that, that forces it out of us. It may even, even be things like alcohol that, that loosens things up that come out of us more easily. But there is nothing that comes out of us that was not first in us. You want to know why this is discouraging to me? Because I know what's in me. And Paul knew what was in him. We didn't read it. Scott, I only had Scott read one through six. But, but in, the, in the, the rest of chapter seven of the book of Romans, which is actually the most famous part of Romans seven, listen to, to what Paul says about what is in him. 
In verse 15, he, he starts by saying, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he continues in verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want, that's what I continue to do. There's a part of Paul's heart, there's a part of our hearts, that Paul refers to as the flesh. And I don't think he's trying to to create some mind-body duality. He's not saying, well, the spiritual part of you is good, but the physical part of you is bad. Remember, God created the physical, and he called it good. So it's not that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad, but he's saying that there is a remnant of our hearts that that is still part of our old self. It's our old nature. It's, it's an already and not yet kind of tension in our lives if, if we're trusting in Christ. He says, we are dead to sin. That's already true. And yet at the very same time, he says, so stop sinning. Well, why would he say stop sinning if it's not true that we continue to sin? You see what I mean by already and not yet? It's already true that we are dead to sin and alive to God. It's already true that we are alive to righteousness and no longer slaves to sin. And yet we continue this not yet part of us because we are not yet living in line with our new true identity. Paul actually talks like this all the time. If you're familiar with, with Paul's other writings, the other letters that he's written in the New Testament, you'll hear him say things like this all the time. He'll say, this is who you are in Christ. This is your new identity, so live like it. In other words, this is already true, and yet you're not already putting it into practice. You're not already reflecting this new reality in your life. One example is in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he says, If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation, a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. It's already true. And then he spends basically the next seven chapters in 2 Corinthians trying to say, Now live in a way that reflects your new identity. Because you don't yet do that. Okay, so we're, we're, we're going to come back now to verses 1 through 6 of, of Romans chapter 7. But before we do that, let me just ask you a question. As you, as you consider that we are no longer enslaved to sin, we are, we are no longer dead in sin, and therefore we are dead to sin, and we are now alive to God, we're alive to righteousness. My question is, where do you tend to go with that? In other words, strategically, when it comes to living the Christian life, and you know that I'm, I'm not enslaved to sin anymore, and I am now alive to God and alive to righteousness, but I'm not yet living away in a way that is truly in keeping with that new identity, what do we tend to do strategically? Here's what I think many of us do. Many of us recognize this that's going on in our lives and we say something like this. 
you know, I think I think I need to get more familiar with the rules. I think I need to become a better student of God's law, his commandments, because if I can if I can get a better understanding of his commandments and his laws, well then I will be more careful not to break them and I'll have a clearer understanding of what is expected of me and then I'll become more righteous. And I want to caution us. I think Paul wants to caution us, actually. But when we do that, then, then there are three things, at least, that can happen to us, that can happen in our lives. And Paul talks at least about two of these three in Romans chapter 7, in, in the broader part that comes a little later in his struggle with what he wants and what he doesn't want. One thing that can happen to us if we try to make ourselves more righteous by way of better obedience to the law is that Paul says it'll actually, it can actually make us more rebellious. And you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How, how, how could the law of God make us more rebellious? Well, think about it. The minute you're told something that you're not supposed to do, how often have you thought something like this? Oh, yeah? Watch me. Right? You can't tell me that that's never happened to you. And you certainly can't tell me that your kids have never done that with your commandments. Right? Paul actually, he, he, he gives the impression here that, that the law can become like fertilizer to your sin. We recently had a, a big pile about five yards of, of soil delivered to our yard and it's and, and mixed in with the dirt there was this stuff called leaf pro and when the the, the guy backed his truck up into our yard and was done unloading this stuff he he said to me he said you know that leaf pro stuff that's amazing that'll make grass grow on a rock well i think in a sense paul is saying the law can make sin grow out of a rock because he, he he actually does say he said, the law aroused sin in me. So that's one thing that can happen when we try to use the law as a means for becoming righteous. A second thing that can happen is that we can become zealots for the law. We can become like the Pharisees. We say, all right. I'm going to get serious about keeping the commandments of God now. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm now free to live for God and free to, to live for righteousness. I'm going to do this. Booyah, I got this. And not only that, I'm going to make sure all of you do it too. And we can become arrogant. We can become nearly impossible to live with. You ever try to live with someone who's legalistic? That can happen when we're trying to use the law to become righteous. And then a third thing that can happen when we seek to make ourselves righteous by way of the law is that we can be crushed under the weight of God's requirements. Because all the law seems to be doing for me is magnifying how much I fall short, how many times I fail to do what God requires of me. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversation with someone who has taken this approach to God's law and they, get, they find themselves in a place where they're just saying, I just can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. 
Listen, the law of God is good. Paul says that. The law of God is good. But here's what's so important. You have to understand what the law can do and what the law can't do. Here's what the law can do. The law can be a picture, it can be a mirror, and it can be a window. A picture, a mirror, and a window. The law of God is a wonderful picture of God's character. And, in other words, so the law of God reveals God to us. It reveals God's character. It reveals what God is like. It also shows us what we were meant to be. Before sin entered the world, there was no sin. There was only obedience. There was only humans living in line with God's law. So, so it, it shows us a picture of what we were meant to be. In terms of it being a mirror, it, it's a very clear mirror of what we actually are. You do know that we are not what we were meant to be. That's what the law can do for us. We look into the mirror of the law and you, and you see a reflection of yourself and you will see that you fall short of what God requires of you. Not only do you fall short of what God requires of you, but you are no longer what you were made to be. And then the third thing that the law can do and does do is that it is a window through which we can look and see what we will be. When Jesus Christ returns and he makes all things new and we are restored and we are made whole, the law of God is a window that you can see what you will be like at that time. It's a glorious thing. So it can be a picture of what we were meant to be in creation. It can be a mirror that shows us what we actually are as a result of the fall. And it can be a window through which we can look and see what we will be when we are restored. But here's what the law can't do. It can't be the solution. The law cannot bridge the gap between who we are now and what we will be. It just can't get us there. The law was never meant to be a ladder that we climb, and by climbing it, we achieve righteousness and holiness. The law can't do that. It's powerless to do that, in part because it's not capable, and in part because of our remaining sin nature. So here's what's amazing to me about what Paul does in Romans chapter 7. Paul knows that we are inclined to go here. He knows that we are inclined when we hear, I'm dead to sin, I'm now alive to righteousness. I think he knows that we are inclined to say, okay, well then I'm going I'm to hit the law. And, and almost before he's even finished penning the words of chapter 6, it's as if he knows that this is where we are inclined to go and he basically says, stop, don't do it. Don't go there. I know where you want to go. Don't go. And he immediately introduces a different picture and it's brilliant. 
He draws us in by talking about the law because he knows that that's what we want to go to. But, but as he talks about the law, he then turns the analogy to marriage. He says, so, so you know, you want to talk about the law? Okay, let's talk about the law. You know that the law is only binding as long as you're living, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if I'm dead, I guess the law doesn't apply to me anymore, right? Okay, I, I can follow you that far. But he says, well, no, it, it's not just that. You, you, if you flip it around, if you're, if you're married to someone and then your spouse dies, well, you're no longer bound to the law of that marriage. Hmm. Okay. And not only that, but, but if, you're, if a wife's husband dies then that woman would then be free to marry another husband, right? Okay. But here's, here's what's so powerful about what Paul says. Because at this point, essentially what he says is, well, you are that bride. That's who you are if you're in Christ. You are that bride. You have died to sin. But you also, he says in verse 4 of chapter 7, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That's the language of marriage. That you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you hear the language of marriage here? He says, you have not died to sin so that you might be joined with the law. No. You have died to sin and the law so that you may be wedded to the bridegroom who has done for you what the law could never do, which is to present you pure and spotless and fit for a loving relationship with the God who made you for this very purpose from the foundation of the world. This is the language of Scripture. This idea that we are are the bride of Christ. I hope this is not new to you, but if it is, please understand, this is throughout the Bible. Very famous place that I, that I often preach from when I, when I officiate a, a wedding is in Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Paul starts off, same apostle Paul, he starts off talking about husbands and wives. That's why we talk about it in a wedding. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. But there, there's, then, there, then he throws in this little thing. Wives, love your husband as Christ loved the church. Or wives, respect your husbands as unto the Lord. Okay, so, so maybe he's just throwing in that little Jesus thing to kind of, you know, drive home how important this is. Or, or to kind of use it as a lever to try to manipulate us and, co- and, and convince us that we really need to do this seriously. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's really saying that this thing marriage we're talking about, 
It's not just about you. It's not just about husbands and wives. Because later, toward the end of that same passage, he says, I know I'm talking about marriage. I know I'm talking about husbands and wives. But this is a profound mystery because I'm really talking about Christ and the church. You see, marriage is revelation. It's a picture of the relationship that God desires to have with us. It's not just about us. Think about the implication of what Paul is saying here for the way that we relate to our sin. Sin is dead to us. Our old self died when Christ died. Right? Isn't that what Paul has been saying over and over again here? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. So what does Paul say in response to that? He says, so put it into practice. How do you put it into practice? The power to bury sin. The power to bury your old husband, if you will, is to fall in love with the new bridegroom. Think about this. I know this doesn't sound very spiritual, but what's the fastest way to get over an old love? Get a new one. Right? We say that all the time. And I know it doesn't sound good. And you're probably sitting there thinking, oh, great. So what you're telling us is the way to get over sin is to have a rebound relationship with Jesus. No, that's not really what I'm saying. Because a rebound is settling for an unhealthy relationship because an unhealthy relationship is better than no relationship. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is falling in love with one who has loved us from the foundation of the earth, who has pursued us to the point of dying on the cross to buy us back, who has had his heart broken time after time after time because we have routinely given our hearts to some other love that is not him. And he has done all of this in order that we might be united to him and bear fruit for God. Do you hear this? We're talking about falling in love with the one who has been pursuing us our whole life. That we were made for. Do you know that we are engaged to the Lord? That's what the scripture says. If you're a Christian, we are engaged to the Lord. And we anticipate that, that just as he lived and died and was raised again and ascended into heaven, we anticipate that he will return. 
And how does the book of Revelation describe what will take place when he returns? There's going to be a feast. And how does Revelation talk about that feast? It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the feast at which Jesus, the bridegroom, comes for his bride, and we are united with him forever. You see, it's love that compels our actions. The secret to me serving and pleasing my wife, and I'm not saying I do it well, just ask her, she'll tell you. But the secret... If I, could, if I could get it, for me to please my wife would not be for her to give me a list of all that she requires of me. How do you think that would go if that's what she did? Hey, honey, let's get married. Great, I do. Now we're married. And then she breaks out this list. How do you think that's going to go? It wouldn't go well because I know me. That's not the way that I'm going to please her. The way that I'm going to please her is by falling so deeply in love with her that I want to please her. That I become a student of her. I study what she, what she enjoys. I study what pleases her. And because I love her and I want to please her, then I just do those things. Not because there's a list, not because she's given me her commandments, but because more and more, deep in my heart, I love her. If you were here last week at the 915 service, you may remember what Thea shared. Thea was the midshipman who shared her testimony. As part of her testimony, she essentially said, said this. She said, early in my Christian life, I wasn't really living the Christian life. She said, I was mostly just trying to be a well-behaved person. Listen, the law might help you to behave better. But the law will not bring you into an intimate relationship with God. The truth that Paul is showing us here is the same truth that Thomas Chalmers wrote about that, that John referred to you at the beginning of the service. It's a sermon, it's part of a sermon that he, he gave called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You know what expulsive is, don't you? It pushes something else out. It displaces something. Listen to what Thomas Chalmers said. He said, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction. They don't just go away on their own. Nor do they, go, do, they, do they disappear by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be displaced. It may be dispossessed. It may be pushed out. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. That's why I said fastest way to get over an old love, get a new love. And this is where Chalmers can't help but pull us into Romans 8. So consider this an appetizer for next week. But he goes on to say, It is only when we are admitted to the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption, 
Notice, it's not the Spirit who makes us a slave again to fear, like the law does. But it's the Spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. When, when that Spirit is poured out on us, then, then and only then, the heart brought under the mastery of one great predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. It is never enough to hold out to your soul a mirror of its own perfections. That's the law. It's not enough to just look at the law. Nor is it enough to speak to your conscience of all its follies. It's not enough to scold your own heart for how often you fail, for how often you blow it. When was the last time you, you got angry with yourself and beat yourself up for how poorly you had performed and that translated into better performance? It doesn't work that way. Rather, you must try every possible method of finding deep access to your heart for the love of him who is greater than the world. Here's the question. Where is your heart toward Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Is he your greatest love? If the answer is no, the solution is not go read the law. The law has its use. It is good. But it will not melt your heart toward the bridegroom. What will melt your heart toward the bridegroom is to consider that he is the one for whom you were made. And he has been pursuing you your whole life. And you and I, we've been running after other laws. We've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Sounds like a country song, doesn't it? It is. But we've been looking for fulfillment in all kinds of other loves. And he has been watching and his heart has been breaking your whole life as you have run from false hope to false hope to false hope. But he has not turned away from you. He has pursued you even to the point of dying on the cross for you so that all of your false lovers might be forgiven, that you might be forgiven for your pursuit of them and that you might be brought in to a right, restored, loving relationship with him. That's what you're made for. I pray that God would allow that truth to get into the deep recesses of our hearts and that that love would displace all others. Let's pray together to that end. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You made us for a relationship with yourself. That wasn't a a later thought. It's the purpose for which you made us at the very beginning. But we are not as we were made to be. We have turned from you. And we have given ourselves to many other pursuits, many other loves. Seeking fulfillment in so many places, so many people, so many pursuits that are not you but you have pursued us.
and you have redeemed us. And you are going to return one day as our bridegroom, and there's going to be a great wedding feast where you and we are united. And we will be together forever. Lord, help us to love you. Take the truth of your love for us and press it into every corner of our heart and displace all the other loves that we would love you, that we would love you first, that we would love you, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.